So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39, uh, probably a familiar story for most of us who have been in or around the church growing up. Genesis 39, before we read the passage this morning, I want to begin by uh, just kind of piggybacking on what I said before, uh, before the prayer, uh, wanting to just let y'all know the blessing that uh, Redeemer Church has been to my life and my ministry just in the last couple of years. I think it's good for the body to hear how the Lord is using this church, the pastor who serves you so well, um, getting to know Ryan and being ministered to uh, by Ryan has been a great blessing. So just, just for you to hear, I know you guys have a great lineup of preachers who are coming to proclaim the word, may have already been um, sharing some of these, these same sentiments, but I just want you to hear it from me, Joel Kinberg, a pastor in Weatherford, Texas, Uh, Ryan has truly been a pastor's pastor, Uh, and you just need to know that he has uh, been so faithful here to this flock and and the love that he has for y'all, and and it's overflowed to others in this region. His desire to see healthy churches uh, all over the place, both here and abroad, uh, is is just the aim of, of bringing God the most glory possible and him seeing that uh, avenue and him walking in it very well in equipping other pastors to, to build up the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so he's been just a great encouragement to me. Sometimes I, I wonder how he has the time to not only serve the flock here, but then also to minister to so many other pastors. Uh, but he has just been a tremendous blessing to me. And... Uh, I think we should all glorify, uh, praise God for, for the ministry that's happening here at Redeemer Church. And so I pray that you're encouraged by that. My family has definitely been over the last couple of years. So the sermon title this morning is A Greater Glory. And before we look at the passage, I, I want us to just get settled in the context, uh, familiar with where we are uh, in Genesis uh, we are in the last section of Genesis, and some would label this section uh, the generations of Jacob. And the focus really does highlight on his sons and primarily the way God uses Joseph. Uh, but to, to kind of give, get us all on the same page, um, we, we all recall God calling Abram, changing his name to Abraham, and Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of his sons, Joseph, in chapter 37, has two dreams. And the the combination of two dreams in Hebrew literature that we see happen even in Pharaoh later in this story is confirmation that this will take place and it is from the Lord. He has two dreams, and in both of them, his 11 brothers and his parents bow down to him. And if you recall the story, this does not sit well with his brothers. It actually invokes anger towards him and jealousy, we're told in Genesis chapter 37. And they look for the day when they can, they can treat their brother badly. 
And that day comes when Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers as they are shepherding the flock in a far away land. And as Joseph is heading towards his brother and they see him from afar, we're told in chapter 37, verses 19 and 20, they say this, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will, we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. They don't end up killing him, but they sell him as a slave to a caravan of Ishmaelites heading for Egypt. Then the brothers take his coat that Jacob had given him, this special coat that distinguished the, the, the favoritism, you could even say, of his father towards him, the love that Jacob had for Joseph. They dip it in animal's blood and they present it to the father and basically tell, them, tell him this lie that he's been consumed by animals. Has, they have the, the father verify, is this your son's coat? And the brothers, in their mind, think that's the end of Joseph. They have no idea what continues to transpire. They are oblivious to God's invisible hand at work in the life of Joseph to carry out his promises and his purposes. They do not realize that their very effort to destroy the dreamer, and and so trying to do so, they are actually fulfilling the dreams that God gave Joseph. And I want us to just think how often God works in mysterious ways. As we read through Scripture and even in our own lives, where we think we are plowing the way, setting forth a trajectory, God has many different plans and is orchestrating so many different things at the same time. And so God takes these very sins of what meant to destroy as means of deliverance, not only for Joseph, but for a people, his own people. So that kind of brings us up to speed, and we get to chapter 37. And so please follow along as I read God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was, a handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put me 
He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to Joseph, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he kept when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, there's a lot happening in this passage in chapter 39, and we are going to spend some time looking at all that transpires in the life of Joseph in this narrative. I want, just for a moment, for us to think about what has happened to him as he enters into Egypt. In this small amount of reading, I I want us to make sure we understand that a good period of time has passed He first finds himself in a pit by his brothers uh, working, their aim, and at the end of the narrative, he finds himself in another pit. He's in prison, and you've got kind of these bookends of very difficult experiences. You could say circumstances of this life, very difficult circumstances. He finds himself in Egypt... Far from the promised land, he's, he's been given these dreams, and it seems at this point in time, the dreams of grandeur are shattered. He has become a slave. His future, in a sense, hangs in the balance. He is very much, as far as living on this earth, very much alone at this point in his life, separated from family, vulnerable, with a cloud over the future. 
What is emphasized through this passage is that he is not alone. We need to hear this. No matter where he finds himself, this reoccurring theme and anthem, you could say, that goes through chapter 39, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. In this passage, we see how Joseph is interacting and responding to some very difficult situations. And so the way we're going to tackle this narrative is is really by looking at three headings. Prosperity, temptation, and adversity. Now, a quick reading of this chapter, it could sound like things may go bad for a moment in Joseph's life, but quickly it seems like blessing comes again. So he's He's been blessed in this prosperous state in Potiphar's household. Yes, sure, some things happen that aren't very good, but at the end of the chapter, it looks like he's blessed again as kind of the overseer of what's happening in prison. And I I want us to slow it down a little bit because, yes, there is prosperity, but there are times of heavy, hard temptation that he endures, and then there are very difficult adversities that we see in Joseph's life. And in this chapter, really we get a a snapshot into what we experience while we live here on this earth. There may be seasons of prosperity. Now, in your mind, you may think, okay, I'm defining prosperity as a lot of money. Not so much. Prosperity can, can come with influence, popularity, maybe even more responsibility to oversee certain things. And yes, maybe property or, or the area of finances, but, but many of us in some way, shape, or form will enter a season of prosperity. And the question is, how, how do we respond in those seasons? I think this chapter helps us. And then I can say, without a doubt, all of us will enter into temptation many times in the course of this life. How will we respond? And then lastly, adversity. The Lord tells us that we will experience trials of various kinds. How will we respond during adversity? I think this chapter has much for us in God's Word. So first, looking at prosperity. It's very clear in the first six verses that Joseph, because of the Lord's blessing, experienced success. He is put in a a hard situation Uh, You have to remember, going to a foreign country, they did not speak Hebrew. And so even learning a language, all of these things Joseph had to be working at and diligent at in order to survive and, because of the Lord's presence, prosper in this situation. But we see very clearly, just looking at those first few verses, that everything Joseph did in Potiphar's household it was clear that the Lord's hand was upon him. And so he experienced prosperity. And I, I, want to, I want to ask the question, maybe several questions, as we think about just this, this area of life, if you experience prosperity, how, how have you handled it? If you ha- if you, in your mind thinking, I have not yet experienced it, I can't wait for that day, How will you handle it? How will you respond or how have you responded to prosperity or advancement in the workplace, 
maybe you've gained favor, uh, given a lot of responsibility. In the flesh, a tendency is for pride to creep in. So as we are looking just with our physical eyes and you experience prosperity, a temptation is for you to think, man, I am good. I'm doing some things right. Kind of puffing yourself up. There's the tendency for self-exaltation, entitlement. Once you begin to experience the favor of others, you begin thinking, I now, I deserve this. I have worked so hard, this is what should come my way. For some, it's a tendency, a temptation to begin treasuring up what you gain from prosperity. So what I mean by that is your heart is no longer being ruled by a horizontal love for, I'm sorry, a vertical love for God and what He is in the communion you have with Him and you start being satisfied on more of a horizontal plane. The things that you're experiencing, life's uh, circumstances are actually what's stirring your heart. And so the question is, what are, what are our hearts ruled by? When prosperity comes, that is actually a great gauge to diagnose what's going on inside of us. Because if that was taken away, how do we respond? And so as we watch Joseph, we see him experience it, and we see it removed. And how, how is he going to respond? It actually reveals what his heart is captured by what his heart is captured by. And so a question to kind of follow up, if you maybe see in your own life a tendency to move in that direction of being your heart being captured or stirred by, by what you experience, the question is how do we avoid going down that track? How do we avoid becoming prideful when we experience prosperity? One thing to think about is... Um, This reality, to be completely enthralled or made aware of God's forgiveness and gratefully aware of his undeserved blessing. I feel like our worship, singing songs corporately together, has been a a reminder this morning that anything good that we've experienced is by God's grace. It is unmerited favor. We don't deserve any of it. Anything that is good that comes down from God is a gift. If you keep that proper perspective, we are aware that we have been forgiven. That is God's grace upon us. We are aware of all blessings being undeserved. Then we will be willing to to kind of navigate the waters of prosperity with hands not clenched around what we have or what we have been given, but holding things loosely, knowing that anything that has come that is good is from God. If he takes it, he is still good, and he is in control of all things, and so we can rest in that. But when we are made aware of God's forgiveness and grateful of his undeserved blessing, we then can willingly offer to him what we have experienced, what we've been given, because we're not holding it tightly. He gives, 
he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so it's a heart that is not ruled by horizontal prosperity, but by vertical worship. And the result of a heart that's been captured by God and not by things or prosperity, that is when the Lord that is when the Lord can really be glorified in our lives. You see it in Joseph. I, I want to just draw your attention to verse 3. His master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Potiphar, we're told in this narrative, is actually being able to see that it's much more than just Joseph that is, that is causing all this good to happen. Don't we want our lives to be that kind of light? That if there's anything good coming from us that is affecting others, God is the one that's glorified. Please, Father, look, have them look past us and you get the glory. May God, may God use us as channels of his blessing. And in kind of a fundamental question to ask if you're thinking about how you've responded to prosperity and blessing and, and influence is in your own life, whose kingdom are you living for? Most of us would, would say, if you're a believer, I live for God's kingdom. But if we were to truly analyze the thoughts and motives of our hearts, most of us are prone to live for our little kingdoms live for ourselves. When God prospers people who are no longer living for their own little kingdoms, their own selfish desires, their own will, the result is a furtherance of his kingdom, his purposes on earth, which in result in uh, which results in him being glorified. And so I I I pray that you would join me in crying out to God that he would use us, make us channels of blessing to others. That if we are experiencing prosperity in this life, whether that's wisdom from God that impacts other people's life and decision-making, whether it's influence, whether it's popularity amongst our friends, whether it's money or property, that we would be not building our little kingdoms, but building God's kingdom using it for his glory. The next is temptation. As this chapter unfolds, we first see how Joseph is is flourishing under Potiphar's household, and, and there is much blessing happening there. But what we also are introduced is this reality that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, And after a time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And so we've taken a moment to look at prosperity and now a reality that all of us experience in this life, temptation. And so we want to look at how how Joseph handles this situation. I'm grateful for this passage I'm grateful in a lot of ways. In the area of temptation, I'm grateful that this was not a one-time event. 
because I feel like this really conveys the reality that we live in, that temptation happens daily. You see in verse 10, um, she spoke to Joseph day after day. So it would be one thing, and we could applause this, like, man, Joseph overcame temptation if it just happened once. Like, he came into work one day, and there was just this crazy situation where it was heavy temptation, and he said no, and he fleed. Like, that, that would be an encouragement. God, by his grace, empowered him to say no and flee. But what I want us to just think about for a moment is that she came in day after day, tempting him. How do we, in those moments of continual temptation, fight the flesh, mortify sin, and overcome temptation? Think about this for a moment. No one knew Joseph in Egypt. It would be very easy to give in to temptation. What will motivate us when we come into these critical choice points in our lives? The fear of consequences is not enough. When seduced by Potiphar's wife, why didn't Joseph give in? And the way Joseph responds to Potiphar's wife actually helps us kind of fill in this question, fill in the gaps here. He gives three reasons why. Why he will not give in to temptation. Verses 8 and 9. The first thing we see is that Joseph makes it very clear that this would be, this would be an abuse of the trust that I have been given by this man. I have been given, I have been given a very great responsibility. An amazing trust Potiphar has, has given me to oversee his things his estate. But then he kind of ratchets it, it, it up another level. And he says, this is actually an offense against him as a person because you are his bride. And so not only would I be sinning because of an abuse of power, of, of responsibility that I've given this, been given this trust, but, but I would be, be sinning against him and against you if I partake of this temptation. But the fundamental reason why he says no is that it's a great sin against God. Joseph recognizes more than any other reason it is a great sin against God. Now for some of us we may say, well that, that makes sense. If you're sinning, you're sinning against God. But but a lot of times that does not captivate our hearts when we enter into temptation. Is it enough? King David in Psalm 51 helps us hear this reality again. When we are sinning, what's actually going on? Who are we sinning against? If you'll remember, this is, this is when, when David sinned against Uriah with Bathsheba, his wife. Great sin against people. And the ramifications were great. And this is what David says in verse 4. 
against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so sin, therefore, is fundamentally opposition to God. It is rebellion against God, and we need to hear this. When we sin, it is hatred towards God. But I love God. You need to understand, when you choose to sin, at that moment, you are saying, I love whatever this is more than I love you. I want to circle back just for a moment. When I mentioned why I appreciate this passage, this ongoing temptation, I speak to to men all the time who struggle with sexual temptation. And the the verbiage that is used if they've if they've overcome that temptation is that I have I've conquered that temptation. And although these words don't come out of their mouth, I'm always concerned that that they almost seem that to, to state that the battle is over. But the repetition in this passage of the ongoing temptation is a reality that we all find ourselves in. That we have not arrived and said and say we've overcome sexual sin or temptation. It is a daily battle of the flesh. May we just be alert again that that it is a constant daily going out and pulling weeds and fighting the flesh daily. Putting to death sin, a commitment over and over again, like Job said in Job 31, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. That was not just a one-time declaration and then he just kind of goes on his way thinking, I've said it and now I'm good. Every day waking up and pleading with the Lord that he would give you strength this day to overcome temptation. I never enjoyed homework in school, but if I could give you some homework to go away with, at some point today, this week, read chapter 38 and then read chapter 39. Um, Some have said, you know, I just don't understand why chapter 38 is there. It's Judah and Tamar. But there's an amazing contrast that happens in the previous chapter describing what's going on in the life of Judah, one of Joseph's brothers. And then you read in 39. In 38, Judah just gave in to sin over and over again. And there is this just stark contrast in 39 of, of Joseph's obedience Faithful obedience in the midst of hard, difficult situations. And I believe that they're side by side for many reasons, but one of them is for us to see, yes, the sinfulness of man and our great need for a Savior. Also, those celebrating, rejoicing in faithful obedience. Because what you see in 38 is the consequences of sin. Not only are circumstances hard, trials and tribulation, but when you add on top of that the sin that we commit and the consequences that we have to deal with, it is messy and hard and it hurts. In Joseph's life, yes, there is adversity and very difficult circumstances, 
But what he's not having to deal with, he's not having to deal with a guilty conscience. He's not having to deal with mourning over his own sin and, and, and adding that on top of all that is happening in his life. And so there is, there is blessing to be had with this, this kind of theme of uh, obediently enduring that we see in Joseph's life. We see that in the Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is this this hunger and thirsting for the Lord's will, for righteousness in Joseph's story. And in the midst of hard, difficult things, there is satisfaction to be had. There is blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, adversity. The last part of this chapter. We see true adversity happening in the life of Joseph. We, we heard the story read. Potiphar t- turns on Joseph. He believes his wife. He throws him into prison. And so Joseph ends up in another pit. And we hear this. And you think about all that Joseph has tried to do this obediently enduring. He has rejected the advances of Potiphar's wife. He seeks to follow God's law, and yet he's experiencing injustice. It is fragrant, fragrantly unjust. And so a question to ask if you're just thinking about all the experiences that he's enduring just in this chapter, where is God when his loyal servant suffers such injustice? A question for you to think about in your own life. Have you ever sought to do what's right and still end up suffering for it? Maybe it's in your household with some siblings. Maybe it's at school in the workplace, sought to do what's right, and you still end up suffering for it. Here's the question. What will sustain you when you hit these lows in life? When you experience trials like this of injustice, adversity, what will sustain you? Think for a moment of the life of Joseph. He has been diligently working his way up and now can, I can only imagine the, the feeling of being defeated, deflated, ready to throw in the towel. When adversity comes, our natural response when, when trials appear in our lives typically are this. We are often surprised, confused, afraid, frantic, impatient. Some respond in anger towards God because of what is, what's coming our way. In order to not respond that way, again, this reality, there must be a greater glory. Because when prosperity comes, you need to understand that just as quick as it comes, it can go. And if you are anchoring 
your life on that prosperity, you are set up for failure. It is a a cistern that runs dry. It is broken. If God is not captivating our hearts, when temptation comes and life is hard, you're going to run after those things deceitfully thinking that in some way, shape, or form, they can satisfy a longing that you have. Again, a broken cistern that will run dry. And then in adversity, in adversity, in trials, when you are at your wit's end, what prevents you from throwing in the towel or becoming embittered towards God? In this passage, we see that undercurrent. The Lord is with Joseph. The presence of the Lord. A greater glory. Satisfaction in God alone. Because here's the reality. Adversity in life is not, the way, uh, is not in the way of God's glorious plan. It is actually part of God's glorious plan. Many of us don't even realize that our hearts have been captivated by something else, not God. And we have to realize this. Whether it's prosperity, temptation, adversity, God will do whatever he needs to do to make us aware of where our heart is captivated, where our heart is being drawn towards. This is his grace to reveal to us what's happening in our hearts, what's stirring our affections. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it is difficult to endure. But it is actually his love being put on display, drawing us back to himself. And what's so beautiful in the life of Joseph, the, the, the narrator helps us see that God was with him. And God was blessing him. And, and Joseph was experiencing God's steadfast love. And Joseph was entrusting himself to God and his plans, however hard and difficult that might be. So the presence of the Lord, the satisfaction in God alone, is what will sustain us, is what will allow us to endure prosperity, temptation, adversity, and not lose our way, not be drawn into the experiences and let them consume us. And rule us. And so the message of this narrative comes through loud and clear. The Lord was with Joseph in each moment. In prosperity as well as adversity. And there is a, there's a song some may be familiar with. Footsteps in the Sand. And uh, thinking about this song, the songwriter wonders why there were two sets of footprints when he prospered, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, when things are going well, we feel like we're really experiencing the blessings from the Lord. We're quick to, to identify that, give him praise, so we, in a sense, see not only our footsteps in the sand, but God's. And I, I don't want to be cheesy here at all. The song may come across that way. But the point that's made, I think, is helpful. 
he, he, he wonders why when things are going really well, the, the two footprints are, are visible, but only one set of footprints when he's suffering. Had God abandoned him when he suffered? He asked God about it, and God replied, this is not inspired, so don't, don't get me wrong here, but the way God responds, I think, helps us when we think about the Lord's presence with Joseph in this chapter. My son, my precious child, I love you, and I would never leave you during your times of trial and suffering. When you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. So why were there not two sets? Just this imagery of God actually being for us so much so that he is carrying us when we hit those those pits of life, the low points, or when temptation seems to be beyond our ability to fight. This is this reality of the Christian life. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and I would add to that, most dependent upon him. How is God honored and glorified? It's when we say we cannot do it in our own strength. And we run and cling to him. Whether that's during prosperous times, God, please help my heart not be captured by these things, but by you. So whether they come or go, you are still ruling my life. When temptation comes, that the temptation would not lead us to think that it's going to bring satisfaction because there's only one who can bring us satisfaction. God, give us eyes to be satisfied in you during those times. And then adversity when it's very difficult and we are maybe at the lowest point and trials are just crashing in upon us. May we see God as our source of strength, our satisfaction, the well that does not run dry. And And here again, the reality that we heard read earlier in Psalm 139, just a few of the verses. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. God is present with his people. God's presence with his people runs like a major thread through the Old Testament into the New. With the patriarchs in the life of Joseph, God is there. With the people of Israel, the presence of the Lord is with them. When we get to the Lord Jesus coming from heaven to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. And then Jesus promises, as he ascends to the Father, I will be with you always. And then in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost, God is with his people. And then this promise, when Jesus comes again, God will dwell with his people. Now for some of us, we need to ask how we have done in our own lives when it comes to prosperous times, when it comes to temptation, and when it comes to adversity. If you're like me, you have failed miserably in all three areas. And so the question then, the follow-up question is, do we deserve to have the Lord's presence with us 
Do we deserve to experience God's steadfast love? And the answer is no. We do not deserve it. And so then you need to ask, well, how can I be certain? Where does the certainty come from that I actually am experiencing God's presence and God's steadfast love? And we look to the Lord Jesus. I want to just remind you, when Jesus was on the cross, at the height of his suffering, in Mark chapter 15, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And Jesus cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus was forsaken momentarily so that we would never be forsaken. This is the good news of the gospel. One took our place, died the death that we deserve to die so that we might be able to cry out to God at any time, Abba, Father, through the Lord Jesus, we have confidence that the Lord is with us And that we experience His steadfast love. That we will never be forsaken. We will never be lost or abandoned. At the high points of this life, at the darkest points, at the low points, God is with His people. There's a hymn that we have in our hymnal that we sing occasionally. And it's entitled, My Soul Finds Rest. And the second verse really kind of brings this all together, and this is where I'd like to close. Find rest, my soul, in God alone, amid the world's temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you have specially revealed yourself to us, who you are and who we are, and our great need for a Savior. Father, we rejoice those in Christ this morning in your presence in your steadfast love. Father, this life is difficult. We are so prone to wander. Father, I pray this morning that you would seal our hearts to yours, that we would be captivated by your glory and your goodness, your love and your faithfulness that the overflow of our hearts would be the joy of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us see that as we are battling how to respond to prosperity, how to respond to temptation, how to respond to adversity, that this is a battle for our hearts. And we declare this morning that we need your forgiveness as we run after things of this world, as we fear in a way that is not glorifying to you when things are going very poorly. Help us, Father. Father, we pray that you would draw us again towards you. Impart your truth by the power of the Spirit into our hearts.
hearts, enlarge our hearts this morning to run after you. And may you be glorified in our lives as we, as we endure trials of various kinds, as we experience prosperity, and as we experience temptation. Father, we pray that we would be most satisfied in you and you would be glorified in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.